or Deuteronomy 4. Now, this morning, I've got a lot of Bible. A lot of Bible, okay? Keep your Bibles open. We're going to preach the book this morning, okay? Y'all okay with that? Deuteronomy 4, stand with me, please. This chapter's got 49 verses. I'm not going to read them all. I'm only going to read a couple of verses because we're going to look at them. I'm going to quickly back up and hit quickly last Wednesday night's message. And then we're going to jump into some new stuff the Lord gave me to go along with this thought. Okay? And um, so keep your Bibles out. We're going to expound scripture this morning. Ask God to put it all together in our hearts. But for the sake of time, Deuteronomy chapter number 4, verse number, my goodness, I don't even know where to start. Let's start with verse 1. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you, for to do them, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. You shall not add unto the word which I will command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Verse 3, your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God hath destroyed them from among you. But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive, every one of this day. My goodness, what a passage. Look at what it says in verse number 28. And there shall you serve gods, the work of men's hands and wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But if, if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. When thou art in tribulation and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days if thou turn to the Lord thy God and shalt be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers which he swear unto them. We're going to stop right there. We started a message on, on Wednesday night on breaking the cycle. We talked about this vicious cycle the nation of Israel found themselves in. Where they would serve the Lord and then fall into idolatry and then be judged and punished and scourged and chastened and get right with God. And then God would bless them and then that cycle would start all over again. Talked about how that, that reflects in many times people's Christian life. Their Christian life, their walk with God is just this vicious cycle of on and off, hot and cold, in and out, up and down, spiritual and carnal, trusting God, doubting God, walking with God, running from God. This just circle, just circle. And I want to preach a little bit more this morning on breaking the cycle. Lord, help us, I pray. As I try to put together in my message all the verses and passages of Scripture that are flooding my heart and mind, May God's people this morning, Lord, who have very obviously from the messages that I've received, hungry for more of this subject, I pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I cannot, time will not permit me to preach the whole message that I preached Wednesday night to bring you up to speed. But I've got to just quickly cap it, okay? So I took the PowerPoint from last Wednesday night. I just added a couple slides at the end for the new stuff, but we're going to quickly, for those of you that were not here on Wednesday night, I encourage you to go and find that message and listen to it. But if you weren't here, and just for the sake of continuity and clarity, I want to quickly recap this cycle. So the first thing I want to point out is the different elements of this cycle that went on for hundreds of years. It literally went on for generations. This wasn't just in one story. This wasn't just one tribe. This wasn't under just one king. This was a cycle that we see throughout the entire history of the nation of Israel. And as I said, many times it reflects the same cycle that I see Christians going through. When I say that, I mean, wouldn't you like to be one of those Christians uh, that just is steadfast, unmovable, consistent, faithful, and the same. I mentioned that I've met Christians that uh, I've seen 30 years ago and they never wobbled on the axle. They're still going strong. They never took an exit ramp. They never took a break. They never uh, deviated from what God called them to do and they just stayed on track and they were consistent and they were faithful. That, by the way, is what God wants us to be. It's what God would have us to be. But unfortunately, many people seem to imitate and emulate this cycle that the nation of Israel was on. 
So to outline chapter four of Deuteronomy, which we could have used a variety of passages of scripture to illustrate this cycle, but it's all right here in chapter number four. It starts with defined expectation. Defined expectation. We read verse number one. We read verse number two. Hearken unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you to do them. You shall not add to the word which I command you that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. In verse number five, he says, I've taught you statutes and judgments. Look at verse number 12. And the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words. Ye saw no similitude, only you heard a voice. And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even 10 commandments, and wrote them upon two tables of stones. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might do them in the land with you go over. It always starts with God defining his expectations. It always starts with God saying, this is what I want you to do. God's never asked us to read his mind. God's never asked us to try to guess what his will was. God was good enough to clearly give us his expectations. Amen. By the way, it far exceeds the 10 commandments that Moses referred to written on stone. The Bible's filled with precepts and laws and statutes and expectations of God, principles that God has given us. In fact, the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm, 150, uh, Psalm 119, where the, uh, David, in every single verse, alludes to the importance of the word of God. God defined his expectation. The second thing in this cycle is the delightful existence. Whenever God's people would simply do what God told them to do, he blessed them. Their life was just wonderful. By the way, when you and I ever learn to just do what God wants us to do, we will experience God's blessings. The reason why many of us have such a difficult life is because we refuse to do it God's way. And God has the, uh, uh, the, the formula for uh, blessing, and that is to do what God would have us to do. Verse number four of Deuteronomy chapter number four, he said to them, he said, you're actually, you're alive because you did what I told you to do. You're here today. You're, you, you made it this far. By the way, if you're saved this morning, you got saved because you took God at his word and by faith you trusted him and the plan of salvation and the gospel message and you just trusted him to do what he said to do. They had a testimony in verse number six of a great nation. What nation is there so great? They said those nations around you, all the sight of all the other nations which will hear of all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. They had a testimony and a reputation for being a great nation just for simply doing what they were told to do. And he goes on to verse number seven, what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them? What nation, verse eight, is there so great that hath statutes and judgments and so righteous as all this law which I set before you, you will be in an, an elite group. You will be a special group of people blessed by God if you will just take the statutes and judgments that I've given you and just do them. Now, unfortunately, we're not smart enough for this to be the cycle. Find out what God said and do it and watch him bless. No, we're way too dumb for that. We gotta complicate it. And they had complicated it, not just once, but over and over and over and over again. The third step in the cycle, the third process in the cycle would then become a dissatisfied experimentation. They got to where the blessings of God wasn't good enough. God's provision wasn't good enough. God's presence and the, and the manna and the quail and the water that he provided wasn't good enough. They began looking over the fence at all the things that the world had started wanting what they had, which is exactly what happens today. Yes, Christians today get in a mess, they get in trouble, their Christian walk begins to go down when they start looking around at everything that they can't do instead of all the things that God has blessed us with. Can't repeat all this, I gotta hurry. Number four, the next step in the process would be a disobedient exaltation. Every single time without fail, this dissatisfaction and this experimenting with the world deteriorated into a state of idolatry. They would begin to worship false idols and false gods. That's always where it ended up. Watch the nation of Israel. Read the Old Testament. 
They would set up groves and they would set up idols. They would worship them. And then some king would come in there that feared God and cut them all down, chop them all down, destroy all the images and grind them to powder. And then the next king would come back in and they'd raise them all right back up again. It's just a cycle. It always led to the sin of idolatry, worshiping the gods or the small g gods of all the people around them. In fact, in our text this morning in Deuteronomy chapter number four, he said in verse number 16, lest you corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image in similitude of any figure. It don't even matter what. They're not, they, weren't even partic- they weren't even particular about their false gods. It could be to a male, it could be to a female. Look at the next verse, verse number 17, the likeness of any beast, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish, unless you lift up your eyes, verse 19, and look at the sun and your moon and the stars and you begin to worship that. He said you get to the point where you're so dissatisfied with God that you'll worship anything and everything but God. It don't matter what it is. It doesn't even have to be anything amazing. This is anything, a cricket, a tadpole, there's an idol right there to a, to a bird. Let's worship that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't even have to have a logical reason behind it. They just get so enamored with the world, they will worship anything that the world tells them to. Are y'all following the connection between the spiritual state of people today? It doesn't even matter. The devil, the devil doesn't have to get creative anymore to get people backslid and out of church. It, just, it don't matter what it is. It's it's unreal. And then the next step in the process and the cycle would be a disciplinary experience. God would then judge. God would punish them. He would send plagues. He would send judgment. He would send oppression. He would send all kinds of different things to try to get their attention, show them the error of their ways. We see that in verse 20 down through verse number 28. He said in verse 23, take heed unto yourselves lest you forget the covenant the Lord your God, which he hath made with you and make you a graven image or the likeness of anything. Verse 24, for the Lord thy God's a consuming fire, even a jealous God. When you shall beget children and children's children, you shall have remained long in the land and shall corrupt yourselves and make a graven image or the likeness of anything and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land. Verse 27, the Lord shall scatter you. We could just go on and on and on. He says, I'm going to be stirred to anger and there will be judgment, there will be discipline. You turn that over to the New Testament church dispensation and we find today that children of God that get away from God, fall out with God and they start pursuing the things of the world, the sin, sin and things of that nature. They experience the chastening hand of God. Amen. God will chastise. Is everybody Okay. A lot of times people want God to deliver them from their troubles, but not realizing that they brought that on themselves. Many times it's the chastening hand of God, their failure to be faithful to him. We see the disciplinary experience. And then there would be next a delivering exhortation. God would send a prophet. God would send a man of God to confront them, show them how to get right, show them the error of their way, show them what they did wrong, remind them of who God is, remind them of who they were, and point them back how to get things right with God. Always, God sent a man to confront them, a message of deliverance and a message of salvation, and then there would be, number next, a diligent examination. He said in verse 32, down through, well, in our text in verse 29, but if you, if you seek the Lord your God, Thou shalt find him. If you seek him with all your heart and with all thy soul. Verse number 32. For ask now the days that are past. And we just, I just, if I'm not careful, I'll preach the whole message all over again. This is the cycle right here that many Christians find themselves caught up in. They hear what God wants them to do. They say, this is what I'm going to do. They'll go to the altar, make a commitment. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to stop doing this. And I'm going to allow God to have his will and way in my life. I'm going to make him the Lord of my life. I'm going to let him sit on the throne. I'm going to let him make the decisions. I'm going to just trust him. I'm going to just follow him. I'm going to lead my family in this direction. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do this. And then somewhere along the way, they begin looking over the fence and seeing all the things that the world has. And they become dissatisfied with the things of God. It's not good enough for them. They start feeling entitled. They start feeling deprived. They start feeling like God has, has cut them off from being able to do things that they enjoy. And the next thing you know, their neck deep deep in idolatry, spiritual idolatry. And then God has to chase them. 
And he'll use a variety of things. He can use physical sickness. He can cause you to lose your job. He can put you through some sort of a family crisis. He'll do whatever he's got to do to get your attention and get you back in that altar face to face with the reality of what happened. And then you'll say, Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. He's patient. He's long-suffering. You'll get up and go back and start that cycle all over again. And for some Christians, that pretty much describes their entire Christian existence. A cycle. A cycle. Wouldn't you like to break the cycle? Wouldn't you like to stay at the top of that thing and just find out what God wants you to do, ask God to give you the grace and strength to do it, experience His blessings, and that just pretty much be it? It's possible. It's possible. You're not, you're not predestined to being on Satan's roller coaster for the rest of your Christian life. You don't have to be the devil's yo-yo. Up, down, up, down, up, down. Every time you come to church, different. Different mood, different attitude, different response, different level of receptiveness, different level of sensitivity and tenderness to the things of God. It's just, it's just growing. You're just growing. You're going further, higher ground. Your Christian life is just one straight beeline toward God. I started off last week with some things that I believe if the nation of Israel had done, they could have broke that cycle. And if you and I can do it, it'll break the cycle. I can't repeat all this, but I'll touch on it. Number one, it starts with an appreciation for a sovereign inheritance. In verse number 20, here's what it says. I'm back in Deuteronomy 4. Look what he said. The Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance. As ye are this day, God in his, in his sovereignty chose the nation of Israel, not because of who they were, not because of what they were. God just chose them. I'm going to take this nation and I'm going to make them mine. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, they are going to be my inheritance. And as a result of that, verse number 21, uh, I'm going to give them an inheritance. Are y'all seeing all this? You're my inheritance. I'm going to give you an inheritance, verse 21. I'm going to give you a, 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 an inheritance. Verse 22, you pass over and possess the land. He gave them an inheritance. Do you see that word inheritance often? Here's the problem. They didn't appreciate it. Just like a lot of Christians today do not appreciate the fact that God has purchased them, bought them, and that they are his chosen people. They're not grateful for it. It's almost like it's a, it's a bad thing. It's almost like they're, they're, they're saddled with this, oh man, I can't do what I want to do because I'm, God bought me and purchased me with his own blood. Are you kidding me? That's your first problem, your first mistake, why you can't stay committed and faithful to God is because you don't appreciate what all he's done for you. Just like Brother Berner preached in Sunday school this morning, Ephesians chapter number 2. We were dead in trespasses and sins, and you had to quicken, and he saved us to show us the exceeding riches of his grace, and he's, we're seated together in heavenly places. He said in 1 Peter 2, 9, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A lot of people are not excited about the fact that they are a chosen generation. And that's part of the problem. Why they can't stay committed and faithful to God is because they don't appreciate that what God has given them and what God has done for them and who they are to God. Us, the church, the people of God. So many other verses we can look at, but number, number two, I'm still recapping. There needs to be an acceptance of a spiritual identity. We have a new identity in Christ. The problem with Israel, they didn't appreciate the exclusive identity that they had. God did things for them he had not done before or has not done since. That is found in our text in verse number 32. For ask now the days that are past which were before thee since the day that God created man upon the earth and ask from the one side of heaven to the other whether there hath been any such thing as this great thing is or hath been heard like it. Did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as thou hast heard and live? No. 
Or hath God essayed to go and take him a nation from the midst of another nation? Talking about taking the nation of Israel out of Egypt by temptations and by uh, signs and by wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm and by great terror. Has God ever done that? No, he had not. Amen. There was something unique and special about the nation of Israel and they didn't seem to care. Let's go over to the New Testament. You and I were saved. We're the church. We're the part of the body of Christ. There's a unique identity attached to the people of God. Jesus said to his disciples, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. There's something different about us. We're the children of light. Saved out of the world, the world of darkness. We can just go on and on and on. The problem is a lot of people start, their, their Christian life begins to spiral downward. They start on this cycle when they get to the place where they do not accept their spiritual identity as a believer. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? He goes on and on and gives all these analogies. Come out from among them and be a separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I'll be a father unto you. You're different. And if you refuse to accept that, your Christian life's going to stink. Number three, there needs to be an abstaining from sinful indulgences. If you could learn to say no to your lust and your flesh and say yes to God and yes to His Word and yes to His commandments and yes to His precepts, You'd go a long way toward getting off of that roller coaster. But that roller coaster wins when you yield to your dirty, stinking, rotten flesh. And you decide you're going to do what you want to do rather than what God wants you to do. You're on that downward part of that roller coaster. There's nowhere it can go good. It's going to lead you into trouble. He said in 1 Peter 2.11, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. You're so unique. You're so different. You're not even a part of this world. He called us strangers and pilgrims. You know what he said next? Abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Once you give in to those lusts, the appetite grows from more sin, not less sin. Eve stood there at that garden, looking at that forbidden fruit, the one tree in the whole garden, the one tree on the whole planet. She had been strictly told, don't eat of that tree. And she stood there and looked at it. And the longer she looked at it, the better it looked. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. Fruit to be desired, to make one wise. Here's the reason why a lot of Christians find themselves at the bottom end of this cycle. Instead of looking at all the things that they can have, that God wants them to have, they stand there and stare at that forbidden fruit. And the longer they stare at it, the more they want it. And the longer they stare at it, the more excuses they can come up with to justify eating it. The longer they stare at it, the more ideas they come up with on how to cover it up and hide it once they do eat it. Quit looking at it. That was last week. This is part two. You ready? I want you to turn with me over to Exodus chapter number 19. Exodus chapter number 19. I'm going to go as fast as I can still do justice to the text. This is just another place where we see the cycle. And as I, as I looked at the cycle, I, I, I just reminded that the nation of Israel, they remind me so much of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easy when you're reading about them, you go, man, what were they thinking? What a bunch of idiots. They would murmur. God would kill a bunch of them for murmuring, and then they'd start murmuring because God killed people for murmuring. It's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Stop. And then look at us, I'm going, we're no different. The difference is, we have the whole word of God in our hand and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the local church and each other and we still do what they did. Makes no sense. By the way, this is not a message on how to experience revival in the church. This is not a message on how the church can restore its credibility in our nation. This is not a message on how the church can bring about national revival. This is not a message designed to further world evangelism and reach every nation. This message is to help you stop being the devil's yo-yo. But once you ever get off this roller coaster, then the church will have revival. And we can see a, a, a change in our nation. And maybe we can reach the world. Maybe we need to back this train up all the way to the beginning and ask God to help each and every Christian to have a consistent 
faithful, dedicated, committed Christian life and get off of this thinking roller coaster. Imagine what it would be like if every member in the church was at the top of the cycle all at the same time. Imagine. Imagine if every Christian was operating at optimum level all at the same time. Imagine what that would be like. Instead of having a percentage of the church hungry and thirsty for God and a percentage of the church living in God's blessings and then you get a percentage of the church that's in idolatry and you get a percentage of the church over here getting the daylights beat out of them because they don't get it. Imagine if we could all, imagine if we could all get lined out in formation. What a powerhouse the church would be. Be a force that God could use to change the nation. Well, by the way, one of the things I want to point out about this particular passage of scripture in Exodus is the cycle, that six-point cycle that we looked at, it doesn't have to, it's not always a long process of time. I think it happened in days. It's amazing. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter number 19, we find the giving of the law. We're talking about the fact that God defined clearly what he wanted them to do. They don't have time to read all these verses. But it starts out in chapter number 19 where Moses went up to the mountain in verse 3 and God began to tell him what he wanted. Look at what he says in verse 5. Now therefore if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me. You see that? We're talking back about the inheritance. We're talking about the identity. We're talking about doing what God said. You shall be unto me a nation of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that thou shalt speak unto the people. Moses came and called for the elders of the people, verse 7, laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him, and all the people answered together, and all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Well, how many times have you said that? Lord, if you'll just tell me what you want me to do, I'll do it. Lord, if you'll just give Pastor Schiff the message to help me with my problem, I'll promise you I'll listen and I'll respond and I'll do it. If you'll just give me an opportunity to go to the altar and make a commitment, if you'll just let him be quiet long enough for me to get down there and get right, I promise you I'll do it. And God has done that many, many times. And our answer is, Lord, you just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. That's what the children of Israel said. All the words which I spoke and we will do. Boy, that sounds good, don't it? Moses goes up on top of the mountain. He's up there 40 days getting the law, getting the commandment, writing it down for the sake of time. Jump over with me. Jump over with me. Chapter 31, last verse, and he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. Wow. He comes down the mountain. What does he find? Verse 1 of chapter 32, and all people saw Moses delayed to come down out of the mount. People gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what's become of him. Hang on just a second. Thought you just told Moses, I thought y'all just said, correct me if I'm wrong, I thought you just said 40 days ago that whatever the Lord says, we will do. He's been on the mountain for 40 days and y'all just completely skipped part two and part three of the cycle. You jumped right straight on down there to the idolatry. (laughs) They completely skipped over the blessings and the goodness of God. They completely skipped the whole part of the cycle where the world was influencing them and they were looking over fence. They're in the middle of the wilderness. There's nobody there but them. They went straight from, we're gonna do everything God said to we better make us some God's to worship. Unbelievable. They made this golden calf in verse number four. Unreal. And Aaron saw it. He built an altar before it. Tomorrow's a feast unto the L-O-R-D, Jehovah God Lord. We're going to make a feast to the Lord after we just made this calf. What are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, he's doing the same thing a lot of us do. We try, to, we try to serve God and our false idols at the same time. We've got this hybrid religion. We've got this hybrid man-made Christianity where we can have the God of the Bible in one hand and all of the world's false gods and our man-made gods in the other hand and bring them together. That's exactly what we do. 
walk in here on Sunday morning with our suit and tie and our Bible under our arm, and we've been serving false gods all week long while we're reading our Bible and praying to that God. Come on now. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Wasn't that one of our points? Abstaining from sinful indulgences? Look at them. Look at them. They're, they're, they don't got filthy. They're, they're nasty. Unbelievable. Look at what he said in verse 10. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I'll make of thee a great nation. I'm just going to wipe them all out and start over. Preacher, I think maybe you're overreacting. I'm overreacting. God was willing to just completely wipe them out and start over. He had made a covenant with Abraham, I'm going to make of thee a great nation. He said to Moses, I'm just going to hit a reset button and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. We're just going to start over. Preacher, I think you're overreacting. Me? It gets better. The Bible says that, that, that in verse number 15, Moses turned and went down from the mount, had two tables of testimony in his hand. His anger was waxed hot in verse 19. He cast the tables out of his hand and break them beneath the mount. This is the tables that God had written the Ten Commandments on with his own finger. He was so mad. The meekest man, the Bible tells us, the meekest man. The Bible says that Moses was the meekest man on all the earth. He got so mad, he took the commandments that God had wrote on it with his fingers and broke them. He took the calf, verse 20, which they had made and burned it in the fire, ground it to powder, strode it on the water, made the children of Israel drink it. Boy, I'd like to bend there and watch that. I can see them now getting together. Y'all need to pray for our preacher. He's having a temper tantrum. Y'all need, let's, let's pray for our preacher. He's a little overreacting here. Let's put him on the prayer chain. He's got a problem with his temper. I can see it now. Pray for our preacher. He's just, he's really right now, he's just going through an emotional crisis. He's being a little overbearing. I can see it. Can't you see it? Grounded in the powder, stirred it on the water and said, get on your face and drink it. He still ain't finished. Then he looks around and said, who's on the Lord's side? And all the sons of Levi, verse number 26, gathered together unto him. And he said in verse 27, put every man his sword by his side and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp. Slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. The children of Levi did according to the word of Moses and their fellow the people that day about 3,000 men. Still ain't finished. Still ain't finished. Bible tells us in verse number 35, the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf. See the cycle? See the cycle? See what's happening? It occurred to me, number four, write this down. They could have avoided the cycle if they'd have had an aversion to secular influence. Where'd they get the idea to make a calf out of gold? Where'd they get that idea? They didn't learn it from Moses. They didn't learn it from God. 400 years in Egypt. Starting to bleed over. Come on now. It's amazing to me that the first thing they did when they had an opportunity was to do what all the people around them before had done, which is exactly what's happening today. Why is the church so weak? Why are Christians so weak? They have been so influenced by the secular world. It's crazy to me to think about there was only one thing keeping them from idolatry to start with, and it was one man of God that had a sword he wasn't scared of using. And it occurred to me that there are people today that call themselves Christians that are part of the church and they're not building and cultivating a relationship with Jesus Christ, they're just doing what they're doing because they're afraid the preacher's gonna say something. Moses was the only thing stopping them. And when he was gone for 40 days, they just went hog wild as we'd say down south. The only deterrent was a man of God with a sword. Here's what Paul said in Philippians chapter number two. I'm gonna tie this in with New Testament. I'm still in the book. Here's what Paul said in Philippians chapter number two. Are y'all listening? Everybody okay? Y'all asked me to do this. I was gonna preach something else. Philippians two, here's what he said. Here's what he said, verse number 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, 
not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both the will and do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Don't just live right because I'm here. Don't just obey God because I'm watching. Don't just serve God because you've got me in your face telling you not to and to do this and do that. Why don't you build a relationship with God? God's the one wanting to work in your heart. God's the one that saved you. God's the one that put you here to be a light in a wicked and perverse nation. And as long as you don't do what's right because of the right reason, you won't do it long. I was laying in my bed earlier this morning and I thought about this. Because I've seen it happen over and over and over in other churches. The pastor would fall. What a tragic thing. The pastor would fall. And immediately, a large percentage of the people in the church would fall too. Yes, sir. If I got arrested this afternoon for robbing a bank, some of y'all would never go to church again. I know I'm telling the truth. I've seen it. If I fail, if I fail, some of you, your Christianity is only based on the deterrence of the man of God with a sword. What about God? What about the one that saved you? What about the one that, what about the one that died for you? What about the one, as Brother Berner was preaching, what about the one that's building you a mansion in heaven? What about him? What, you reckon maybe that that would be enough of a motivation for you to stay on course? How many times have I heard people say, well, I got hurt. I got hurt. Of course you got hurt because you was around other human beings. Ecclesiastes says if you cut wood, you're going to get hurt by wood. If you move stones, you're going to get hurt by stones. You do something long enough, it's going to hurt you. You go to church enough, you're involved in the ministry long enough, somebody at church or the ministry is going to hurt you. But I promise you, when you get before God at the judgment seat, it's not going to be enough of an excuse for God to say, oh, well, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you got hurt. Okay, you get a free pass. We're still supposed to be faithful. Serve God, even if everybody around us quits. I've lost track of the men of God in my life that have fallen. I've lost track of the men of God in my life that not only accidentally, but deliberately tried to cut my legs out from under me. And by the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, I'm still here. What am I saying? I'm saying they were only doing right because Moses was standing there with a sword and knew how to use it and wasn't scared to use it. You're not going to live for God faithful and be consistent if that's the extent of your relationship with God. There has to be an aversion to secular influence. Man, I wish I had time. In Nehemiah 13, turn to Nehemiah right quick. Nehemiah chapter 13, it's only five after 11 in Alabama. (laughs) You think Moses got worked up? Nehemiah got worked up. By the way, where are we at? Nehemiah, y'all found it? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Nehemiah. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23, last chapter. In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language. But according to the language of each people, and I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair. And made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among so many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we hearken unto you to do all this great evil to transgress our God in marrying strange wives? And one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. 
What happened? Well, in Nehemiah chapter number one, the Bible tells us that the walls and the gates had been destroyed, knocked down, walls were destroyed, gates were burned with fire. You know what that meant? That meant they had lost their identity, they had lost their inheritance. Come on now. That was just symbolic. You get over to the end of the chapter, you find out the real problem. They allowed all the outsiders. They intermarried. Mingle, mingle their seed. In Ezra, in Ezra chapter number nine, here's what it says. They came to, they came to him in, in, in Ezra chapter number nine. When these things were done, the, the princes came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations. Even if the Canaanites and Hittites and Perizzites and Jebusites and Ammonites and Moabites and Egyptians and Amorites, for they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I said, astonished until the evening sacrifice. He said to God, he built a, he, he said, he, he, Bible says he, in verse number five, that he spread out his hands and started praying, oh my God, I'm ashamed. And I blush to lift up my face to thee for our iniquities are increased over our head. What did they do? Secular influence is exactly where we're at right now. The church has gotten so watered down with the world. Nehemiah said they married the, they married the daughters of Ashdod. That was where the Philistines had the temple to Dagon. Remember that? That was in Ashdod. And he said they married the daughters of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Those were the two incestuous products of Lot and his two daughters in the cave after Sodom and Gomorrah. Y'all follow me? Type of the picture of the flesh. So we get over to the New Testament and we've got a group of people that have been saved and that God has, that has put the Holy Spirit within us and he's called us his church and he wants us to be without spot, without wrinkle. He wants us to be a glorious church and we've intermarried with the world and we've so deluded the church that our children cannot speak the language of God. They're speaking the language of Ashdod. For rat. You tell me how a church is supposed to be able to manage to stay on course and have the power of God and fulfill God's will in 2022 when we're so deluded you can't tell what's what. Where we're at. But you don't have to be like that. An aversion of secular influence. The world has crept in to the Christians' lives, minds, Social media, entertainment, hobbies, thinking, thought patterns, emotions, to the point to where it's, it's, there's very little of God to show. Number five, there needs to be an awareness of satanic infiltration. I'm shocked at the Christians today that are blinded to satanic activity. We're, we're in a spiritual warfare. And people get so tunnel vision. Politics. I'm fascinated by politics. I keep up with it. But we're way past politics fixing this. We're way past this. If you haven't figured that out already, that there's not a political candidate running for any office that has the ability to reverse what's happening in this country. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen on a political level. It's not going to happen, it's not going to happen on a, in a party. It's not going to happen with a march or a protest. And I'm all excited and all for what's happening in Canada. But they need God, okay? 
Truckers ain't going to fix that mess. We're, we're the church, our homes, our marriages, the hearts and minds of our young people has been infiltrated by satanic forces. And most Christians are oblivious. Second Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us for we're not ignorant of his devices, but many are. Wish I had time to expound that, but I got one more point, and that's already a quarter after. We've got first-time guests. I don't want them to think I preach long on Sundays. <laughs> Write this down. There needs to be an awakening of sorrowful indignation. You want to know why you're on that cycle? You want to know why you've lived on that cycle for the last 15 years? You haven't got mad enough yet. You haven't got bothered enough yet. You haven't gotten broken enough about it. You're okay with it. Wee, up and down, wee, up and down, up and down. Wave at the preacher as you go down. Wave at the church as you go by. Out for six months, out for a year, out for two years, come back in, I'm back. Yeah, wee, you're okay with that. Until you get not okay with that, you're gonna live on that stupid roller coaster. I'm in the book, I'm going over, I'm going over to 2 Corinthians. Turn over there right quick, I'm trying to wrap this up. What am I saying? I'm saying it's time to get mad. It's time to get bothered. It's time to get broken. It's time to wake up. The devil's carpet bombing your house and you're buying him the bombs. The devil's lobbing grenades into your mind. You're putting up no resistance. Stealing your peace, your testimony, your marriage, your children, and you're still playing games. There are people that have the audacity to blame the pastor because they're backslid. They have the audacity to blame the church because they're out of God's will. Are you kidding me? Seriously. Well, that preacher, he said something I didn't like. You think? What about all the people who say things to me that I don't like? I'm still here. That door swings both ways. I'm not in this for you. I'm not in this to please you. I'm not in this to be your friend. Why are you in this to be pleasing me or be my friend? What about God? Watch a, watch a dog with a, with a rabbit just tearing that thing up and just flopping around. The devil's doing that to some of y'all. He's turning you every which way but loose. Look at what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7. Now, verse number nine, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us to nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. Started paying attention. You started being, you started getting serious. What carefulness it wrought in you. What clearing of yourselves. That word clearing in the Greek is the Hebrew, is a Greek word apologia. A clearing of yourself. What indignation. That word literally means irritation and vexation. Not at Paul for writing the letter. Not at Paul for the rebuke. Not at the house of Chloe for telling them what was going on. They got irritated and vexed with their own carnality. Right. Said, we're going to do something about it. And their heart was filled with a godly sorrow. Not a fall down in the floor feeling sorry for yourself kind of sorrow. But a indignation. Let's keep reading. Yea, what fear. Reverential fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all these things, you've approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. I'm going to tell you what, if you and I could live in verse number 11, we wouldn't be living on a roller coaster. We could break the cycle if we did these things right here. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I wonder this morning, would there be someone that would get up out of their seat and come kneel on this altar and join these that are already here, already coming, 
Say, I'm tired, of, I'm tired of being in this hamster wheel. I'm tired of this back and forth, in and out, up and down, hot and cold, in church, out of church, on fire, not on fire. I'm tired of the inconsistency in my own life. Would you get in the altar this morning? Ask God to help you break the cycle. It starts with knowing what he wants you to do and just doing it. Accepting the fact that you're his, bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ. You're the church of the living God, called out to be separate, to be different. As long as you're fighting that, you're not going to live a consistent life. The things of the world is always going to be appealing to you. The devil's going to lure you away from the will of God with all these little trinkets, all these little false idols and false gods to steal your heart away from God. I wondered this morning, would you be, be obedient? We've got a baptism. We've got a man getting baptized this morning. You've got time to pray. We're not in a hurry. There may be someone here this morning say, Pastor Shifflett, I'm not sure if I died right now that I'd go to heaven. You talked about being a child of God, being part of the people of God. You weren't even talking to me because I've never been saved. I've never been born again. I've never accepted Christ as my Savior. And I'd like for you to remember me in prayer. Would you be honest enough with God to slip your hand up, preacher, pray for me. I'm not sure if I died right now I'd go to heaven. Please pray for me. Anybody, anywhere, preacher, pray for me. Anybody, anybody, preacher, pray for me. I'm not sure I'm saved, not sure. I'm going to heaven when I die. There's a phone number on the screen if you're watching online. If you'll text that number, somebody will call you in just a few minutes say, I need to talk to somebody. We'd love to take a Bible over the phone and help you with that. I wonder this morning, are you tired of that cycle? You tired of the inconsistency in your life? God would love to help you with that this morning.